0: Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival.
1: Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Alan Little. Uh, I'm a journalist and broadcaster and I chair the board of this festival. That's a great privilege. Uh, It's my privilege also to introduce you to this book today. On the Road, American Adventures from Nixon to Trump by James Naughty, but before I do that, let me just say a special thank you to RBS who sponsored this event and to remind you that if you're enjoying this festival and you you might like to consider donating so that we can bounce back again next year, you can also buy the book online by clicking the buy the book uh, button and going to our uh, online bookshop. British Sign Language interpretation is coming to you from Anna Spence today. That's on your screen as well if you want it. But Jim, welcome.
0: Well, lovely a, to be with you. I tremendous mean, with book. an old friend.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book, Jim. It's a tremendous read. Uh, you, you merge memoir, 50 years of visiting the United States, memoir, some very evocative travel writing, travel not just geographically across a continent but also through time with some great insights into the way that the American political scene has shifted uh, in uh, in the 50 years you've known it. Let me start by asking you this though. What really intrigued me when I started visiting the United States and working there nearly 40 years ago was that unlike European countries which are founded around an ethnic identity, France as the country of the French for example, The United States was founded around an idea or an ideal. This was a people who took the values of the 18th century enlightenment and turned them into a new and revolutionary way of governing. And it's a mistake for Europeans to think that because America is a young country, history doesn't matter very much.
0: Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Americans have grown up with a greater and more finely uh, developed consciousness. About their own history and their own origins than almost any, certainly any, you know, big country on earth, um, and you know there are obvious historical reasons for that. But it is remarkable because they have a kind of self-consciousness that most countries think would be slightly embarrassing, even if they get above themselves from time to time. And you know, it takes you time to get to grips with that, but it's there. Um, and it's always a country that's thinking about itself. That's part of its culture, it's part of its politics, and that's one of the things that I find curious, um, attractive in some ways, slightly threatening in others, but curious and absolutely something that would drive you on and make you want to say, well, why? And this preoccupation with... Uh, the story of its
1: own foundation, which is a brilliant story. It's absolutely intriguing, and I, I never tire of it. Gives it at the same time a burning sense of purpose in the world,
0: which isn't always benign. Absolutely, and an edginess because you're always measuring what happens against the dream of the founding fathers. And you're almost obliged every time you sing the National Anthem, and as you know and I know, you know, you sing it at every baseball game, you're singing it every, you sing it at every... It's there, it's, it's in your head, and you're constantly saying, do we match up to this? And that's one of the things that I think has tormented Americans uh, down the generations. Do we match up? Now. Uh, the interesting thing for me in writing this was that, you know, I went as a young student, I was 17, 18. In 1970, went round on a Greyhound bus, which is what you did in those days. $99 for 99 days the previous year. And we felt rather cheated. It was $99 for a month, but anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, and we discovered this vast country in all its diversity, and we didn't discover it. We, we kind of got a first glimpse of it. But you began to sense um, that it was different in the way that you've just described. And I think that is the mystery that everybody's been trying to kind of delve into for years and
1: years. And that process of trying to live up to the ideals of, of the foundation divides Americans because they don't agree on what they mean by living up to those ideals. They don't agree on the way that they interpret those ideals. Well, indeed.
0: And the, and the, I, I think, in a, in a way, the theme of this book, which is, you know, a personal journey, it's a sort of travelogue, it, 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 I hope describes some tableau of political events um, in a way that will interest people. But the real story is that America, when I first knew it, or began to know it in the 1970, and then back as a student living there for the first time in 73, uh, was deeply, deeply divided. I mean, Vietnam had, had entered the soul of the American argument. And today, it is as divided as it was then, and it's never been since in between. And that's those are the bookends of this
1: story. The other character that comes through the book again and again as a kind of ghostly presence is the Civil War. Oh. Which in some ways you get the impression from the reading the book, the <laughs> Americans haven't
0: stopped fighting. Well, you know, it, look, we're both Scots. When I first went and, and got on the bus and went down south, went from uh, New York down to New Orleans, and, you know, spend some time in the South. I'd never set foot in the country, I didn't know the South. I knew its story, but of course, having grown up as a teenager in the 60s, I knew the whole story of the civil rights movement and the melodrama of the 68 campaign and all the stuff, the assassination of Martin Luther King, all that stuff was kind of meat and drink to a young boy. When I went to the South, two things struck me. One was, um, I understand these people. They talk in the same way as I was brought up to talk. They read the King James Bible. They, you know, they listen to fiddle music. They, and yet. And their conversation is laced with courtesies. But it, courtesies, and yet at the same time there was a, an appalling vision that came to me. Uh, how could it not, of the kind of ghastly division between the races. I mean, I remember tell the story in the book of being in a diner in Atlanta. Little, nothing much happened. I was sitting there, there was one other guy, middle-aged white guy, reading his newspaper, smoking a big cigar, the big fraternity ring on his finger. And he talked to the black man, inevitably, behind the counter, as boy, who was probably 20 years older than him, grey-haired. And they were both polite, because they both knew that was how it was meant to be. And I remember feeling that that was a profoundly shocking thing. And it's never left me. And then if you go into the South and go to the graveyards and see the Confederate graves, you realize the Civil War, to many people there, certainly in the 70s and even now, is something that seemed to have just happened, you know, a generation ago. I mean, you tell the story of uh, only ten years
1: before one of the journeys you make. You make the black people had to get off the train before oh, it crossed the it,
0: as the it came into Washington. If it was going into Virginia before it crossed the Potomac River, um, the train was emptied at Union Station in Washington, and you know black folk got off, and then they had to get in the back carriages. Would sort have, of, of course, they sat on kind of slatted seats, and whites went in the front. I mean. But the,
1: it's the Civil War, you can draw a line from the Civil War to, 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 to today's Trump's America. We'll talk about Trump in a minute. Yeah. But it, the, the line runs through the assassination of JFK and it, because it crystallizes two things that dominate American politics the politics of race
0: and the proper role and scale of federal government. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, race, there's a contemporary cliche that calls it the original sin. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot in that. The sin that can't be um, shuffled off, you know, that is embedded in this this stain of slavery. Um, I think that the the failure uh, to deal with that 150 years ago is one that still pains America today. I mean, there's a chapter in the book where I had a long conversation with Hillary Clinton long after she failed to win against Donald Trump in uh, 2016, although she got three million more votes. Um, and she said, you know, I do believe that the racial problem is America's original sin. And I do believe that Lincoln, a Republican, of course, the first Republican president, the party that will be going for eight years, um, was the greatest president. And, you know, a second inaugural with malice towards none, with charity for all we will bind the wounds of the nation and he was dead of course before um, just actually within weeks of the end of the civil war Um, but you know that was an opportunity missed and it was a hundred years before lbj carried through kennedy's civil rights act and the voting rights act to make it happen and that is i think it's a tragedy with which they live today
1: and it's a start uh, in the book of a story that runs all the way through this book that civil rights moment in the 1960s creates a, a, a culture war. The, the maelstrom of the, of the 1960s, you say, out of it came an electric feeling of alarm. It alarmed much of what, what happened on the streets of Chicago especially, alarmed many Americans and started the great realignment of American politics. The South had been a democratic stronghold. Hard to believe now. Absolutely. But the South had been a democratic stronghold. Never gonna, they were never gonna vote for the party of Abraham Lincoln, the exactly. Republicans, but that, ch- that changed fundamentally in the 60s. It
0: changed, well, Nixon understood it. I mean, Nixon, president from 68 until his resignation in 74 after Watergate. Um, Nixon understood that the South was conservative, obviously, in its kind of social attitude but it could never vote Republican because in the 1860s, Democrats had been the party of state rights against the federal government, therefore against Lincoln, therefore in favor of the Confederacy, therefore on the wrong side, as it were, in the Civil War. And that was corrected. And LBJ said, and I've talked to Clinton about this, Hillary Clinton about this, LBJ said when he passed the Civil Rights Act, forced it through as president, and the Voting Rights Act, he knew he was destroying the Democratic Party in the South. He said um, for a generation, it's turned out to be much longer than. that. Absolutely, and and you're right about the realignment. But it was, you know, it was in the nineties that the interesting thing, if you, if if you look back to seventies and sixties, uh, people didn't talk about the Constitution very much. I mean, they talked about the idea of America and so on. But there was an obsession with the Constitution, which came to bear very heavily on politics in the eighties and nineties, and. The Constitution itself became a weapon, a dividing line. And it was portrayed, especially on the right, as something which had always been there as a dividing line. But actually, most people's lives, it hadn't. You know, the Constitution was there as the guarantor of liberty and so on. But Newt Gingrich, when he became Speaker of the House in the mid-90s against Clinton, and that was a great kind of battle, Bill Clinton in the White House at the time, Gingrich said, you know, we are going to use this constitution as a weapon. Liberals want to use it as a function of a changing society. We want to use it as a bulwark against changing society. And that is the argument of which Trump is the love child Let's talk about the constitution
1: then, because you say uh, in in the, the section on Watergate, which was, happened yeah. when you were in I was falling there. in love with America, I <laughs> was, uh, and and you say about well, the Watergate, the um, it reinforced the feeling that all innocence had gone, and that what distinguished that period was a special prosecutor who wouldn't be cowed. Courts that stood firm, a significant cohort of senators and House members who realised eventually that if their grandiloquent speeches about the preciousness of America's democracy were to be taken seriously, it meant a climactic confrontation with the President of the United States himself. Now you were writing about the 1970s and a different president, Nixon. That's right. You, you must have been thinking as you wrote, wrote that that how very different it is oh, in Trump's Republican. Absolutely. Party.
0: I mean, it's it, it's a complete contrast and. And what was fascinating to me at the time, and I was a student at 73, 74 in the States, um, at Syracuse, Joe Biden's alma mater, as it happens, but he's he's even older than I am. Uh, But, uh, you know, people began to feel, look, the institutions of our country are, you know, they matter, they're under threat, they've got to rise to the challenge of Watergate. Now, Watergate... I think any reasonable person looking at it, compared with Trump's America, would say this was a Sunday school picnic. I mean, okay, it was sleazy, it was silly, it was dark. Nixon was going into a kind of, I think, a very, very dark place. But it was fairly sort of minor stuff in a way. And yet, at that time, I mean, I was very moved by the journalists that I met in in those years there and I I spent some time in Washington in that period in 74, who really felt that there was a kind of moral challenge to their trade to say to the White House and all its satraps, you know, you can't do this. And there was a really... What a high-minded approach in journalism to it, and it's it's slightly different today. But
1: that that connects to what we started this conversation with this this burning sense of purpose, the journalism, the journalists of that period, and many in the quality press now Mm. attribute to the or or, or take upon themselves the idea that they have a civic function, some kind of civic duty that is consistent with the constitutional foundation story. Well, it's
0: quite interesting. I mean, I think. Um, You know, those of us from this side of the pond sometimes think that some of the high-mindedness of the big American uh, papers, as they used to be anyway, and in the old days, the networks, there was a a slight pomposity and a kind of, you know, we're, we're journalists, we're part of the Constitution, we stand by. And we, I think on this side, we used to think, well, that's a bit overblown. But during Watergate, it was clear that there were people who felt they had a moral and public duty to talk about these things. And for many of them, it was very, very troubling. And of course, journalists had fun doing it. I mean, as you, know, as you and I know in our lives, but um, I think it was quite a, it was a very good lesson in what democracy does. But you're right to say, the end of Innocence Point, if you were an American in your, I don't know, mid-40s, In the early 70s, you'd grown up to believe that things would get better and better and better. You got richer and richer. You had more washing machines, more dishwashers in the 50s and all the rest of it. It was all fine. It was quite calm. And you didn't, if you were outside the South, you didn't think about the racial problem. You just didn't matter. By 1974, you'd had the assassination of a president in 63. You'd had, you know, half a million troops under arms in... Vietnam in 68, ending in disaster. In 68, you had a president, Lyndon Johnson, who was basically thrown out of office by an anti-war protester, Eugene McCarthy. You had the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. It was all going wrong. And then you had Watergate. So step forward, the Sunday school teacher from Georgia, Jimmy Carter, in 76. And then America decided, well, He's a terribly good idea. Mr. Clean is all lovely. Then he decided a Sunday school teacher from Georgia is maybe not
1: what we want. Well, he was the sort of accidental president, wasn't he? And there's a story they tell about Ms. Lillian, his mother. And when when he told her that he was going to run for president, she said, president of what? (laughs) (laughs) The school board. There are some some great observational anecdotes, eyewitness anecdotes in here. You met Ms. Lillian. Well,
0: I met Ms. Lillian. I mean, look, uh, I should say it's a story that is unashamedly anecdotal. It's a, it's a journey in a way. It's a, a story of experiences. And, you know, I just tell the stories. I mean, Ms Lillian, I w- was at the 1980 convention. I was working for the Scotsman in those days. And for some reason, they agreed to send me. And um, I was, uh, I had a connection with a guy who was running the NBC radio coverage. So he invited me into the box on the night that Teddy Kennedy, who challenged Jimmy Carter for the nomination that year and it's a pretty disastrous campaign. But my goodness, it was exciting. Uh, Made his great concession speech, the dream shall never die and all the rest of it. Anyway, I was watching this and I found myself sitting between Theodore H. White, author of The Making of the President's books, which I've been reading since I was a kid. And I was kind of in awe. And on the other side, Ms. Lillian Carter. What, What am I doing here? Anyway, so I interjected the odd little thing. And after the speech was over, and they had, it was a half-hour ovation for Kennedy. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was one of these amazing convention moments, which we're not seeing this year. And Ms Lily in turn said, well, that was, surely was a truly wonderful speech. And she sort of paused. She was 84. Paused and said, I sure hope nothing happens to that boy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah. I'm not sure how to take that. Yeah. Maybe it's well-meant, maybe it isn't, I don't know. See, she was a very gracious southern lady. Yeah. Carter, Carter's a brilliant man, you know. And I mean, he's, but, he's had but, the best post presidential life of yeah. any president in our lifetime. But anyway, that's not.
1: What you draw out in the book, rather counterintuitively, which surprised and intrigued me very much, yeah. is that what was interesting about the Carter period was not what was happening in the White House or in the Democratic mm. Party, but the way the Republican Party was again transforming itself completely and, and getting rid of an old guard and, and making itself ready for a new and
0: age. And you see, the, the curious thing, it was done in disguise in a way, because Reagan. You know who I think, and I say there, is abroad, outside America, the most misunderstood president of modern times. Um, Not because of his capacity or his abilities, but because of his achievements inside America. I mean, Reagan, Reagan changed America fundamentally. I mean, the whole conservative movement and conservatives are very. Difficult word because it means something different there from what it means here. It's like middle class, which is entirely different. Um, Reagan um, performed a cultural revolution. I mean, he created a cultural revolution in a way that I don't think any other president actually, ha- I mean, Trump isn't in the same league. And the people who are now, you know, running. Uh, the deeply conservative ideological movement in the States, which has been very powerful for the last 25 years, are the children of Reagan. And, uh, you know, it wasn't because he was brilliant, he had an intuitive feel, but he was able to hold the nation. And in '84, you know, huge landslide.
1: But what he embodied, surely, and you do this in the book very well, is a key idea that still uh, Prevails in the American public discourse that government
0: is intrinsically yeah. bad; all government must be suspect. Well, uh, he always said, you know, government isn't the solution; government's the problem. And he, you know, funnily enough, I, I tell the story in there, and I've got it, you know, well, first hand, but second hand from somebody who was in the room when Margaret Thatcher went to meet him for the first time in late uh, late eighty one. She been in office for a short time. He'd just been elected. She went out and, of course, she was thrilled. I mean, he was a cold warrior. He wanted smaller government and all the rest of it. And she spent time in the Oval Office and she was high as a kite. And they went over to the government guest house in Lafayette Square, funnily enough, called Blair House, formerly, um, I mean, lived in by Tony Blair and a former, in a former, in a later incarnation. Anyway, she was sitting there with Uh, Lord Carrington, Peter Carrington, her Foreign Secretary at the time, and somebody I know who was a Foreign Office uh, diplomat was serving the drinks, large McAllen for Mrs Thatcher. And um, she started talking about Thatcher, uh, about Reagan, and and Carrington pointed at the ceiling and went like this, meaning, might be bugged, I think, shut up, but she was off. And she said, she leaned over to him and said, tapped her head like this and said, Peter, there's nothing there. So she knew of Reagan's limitations. And there was a great crisis with the Gorbachev summit in Reykjavik in 86 when she thought Reagan was going to sell the shop to Gorby. Uh, But she knew that culturally he was moving her way. I mean, it was a huge moment. So what was different about the Republican Party that uh, emerged embodied by Oh uh, Reagan. It, it, Because, it, you know, in the early days, I mean, after the Goldwater fiasco, when he ran against LBJ on a very strict conservative ticket, you know, smaller government, all the rest of it in 64 got crushed. The conservative faction in the Republican Party was, you know, was a minor faction. And it was run by country club Republicans of which George H. W. Bush was the absolute epitome. He became obviously Reagan's vice president, despite having said that Reagan practiced voodoo economics, uh, and president in so 88. very patrician, very patrician, um, and but you know middle of the road. Mm. And don't forget that George W., his son, when he became governor of Texas in '94, ran as a compassionate conservative. Mm and somebody in Texas said to me during the midterms in 2018 if w ran in a republican primary for any statewide office in Texas now he would be bottom of the poll because that's just not He's the two game left wing. it's it's too left wing <laughs> yeah. it's it's completely changed and i think that convulsion was the biggest sort of political movement i've seen in my time in the state and again as with jimmy
1: carter the most interesting thing about the clinton years in the 90s is again what's happening in the Republican Party. Oh, absolutely. And the emergence
0: of this. A key character in your book is Newt Gingrich. Well, Newt Gingrich, who, I mean, some people will remember, um, but many won't. I mean, Newt, and he used to chant, it's very weird at these rallies, Newt, Newt, Newt. Mm. And he, you know, is a slightly sort of nutty history professor type. And I met him several times, and he's a, he's a charming, intelligent, very well read man. But there's, there's something slightly, you know, different about him. And he became Speaker of the House. And of course, Speaker of the House is a political office, not a um, non-political office in, in, the, in the House of Representatives. And he had this thing called the Contract for America in 94, when they were elected the majority for the first time for 40 years. And it was a radical program of right-wing reform. Now Gingrich himself, curiously, because he was assailing Clinton for the Lewinsky business, Clinton uh, Gingrich himself fell as a consequence of a dalliance with a, um, a woman 40 years his junior or something. Uh, but he transformed the language of politics. He made it rougher, more biting, more incisive. And America from that time on has gone down the road of a kind of personal venom in the political dialogue that I think many Americans regret. But the problem is, once it's in the system, how do you drain it out?
1: There's lots to talk about, but I'm going to move forward now because yes. I want to get to Trump sure. uh, soon. But the, one of the most affecting and reflective chapters in the book is your encounter uh, with Hillary Clinton after she is, a couple of years after she had lost the election. Well, And let me just, again, let me just quote to you here. I I realised the depth of her agony, not simply about her own defeat in 2016, but about the failure to complete the journey to a more liberal America, of which she'd been confident five decades earlier.
0: Well, I I think this is a, a really important point. I mean, I went to see her. I'd done a thing with her in London, and so we had a kind of connection. And I asked if I could go to see her. She wasn't doing any broadcast interviews because it was a... A delicate time in the Democrat nominating process and she didn't want to get involved but I said I want to talk to you about this book so I went to see her one afternoon rainy afternoon in New York she's got an office high in a building I mean literally in Times Square extraordinary nobody knows she's there but anyway she is and I went and sat down with her and she was you know she wasn't made up she wasn't it was a kind of it was a proper conversation and I said I'm I'm not interested in going over the Trump stuff because we, we all know that. But I want to talk to you about the history. And we talked about this. And, and one of the things that came through to me very strongly was that she realized that, you know, when she was growing up and she, you know, a star student at Yale Law School and all the rest of it, but instead of going to a big law firm in New York or Chicago, she went down south and did civil rights work. And she said that she had believed that they were set on an inevitable course of, you know, what she would call progressive reform. And, I mean, she also came back and worked in Washington on the House Impeachment Committee and wrote the articles of impeachment against Nixon. I mean, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. As a young lawyer. You couldn't make yeah. it up, anyway. Um, and she said, look, in terms, she said, what people of my generation worry about is that perhaps the feeling that we had that Americans are instinctively bent on progress, on liberalization, on closing the racial divide. Maybe we're not right. Maybe they're not like that. And I sensed in her a troubled feeling that, you know, maybe this country is not as decent and as forward looking as we thought. There was a very, you know, very profound feeling. Again,
1: the antipathy to the idea of public of government solution. Exactly. you say she said she acknowledged that it was hard to make the argument for a collective solution to anything.: now, Absolutely. So what your book again does in decade after decade is show the American right wing reinventing itself while the left remains doggedly rooted in the project of the 1960s.
0: Yeah, I think that's right in a way. I mean it's a but you know. The 60s was such a beacon for people who saw themselves as liberals. And I remember meeting Obama for the first time in 2004 on a street corner in Chicago. And I'd heard him talk at the Democratic Convention in 2004 when he was completely unknown uh, to the country. And he'd been catapulted into a Senate seat in Illinois because of a Republican sex scandal. And he was clearly going to win. But he was an unknown state senator. So they gave him a speaking slot at the convention. And I I was on Rod Sharp's show on Five Live at the time, in the middle of the night, and you know Rod, and I was at university with him and known him for ages. And we watched this, as Obama described himself at the time, a skinny guy with a funny name, making this absolutely extraordinary speech. So I determined before the election uh, that we would go and watch him in Illinois, so we went, talked to him in the street corner. We had to do it on the street because he couldn't do it in the church, Jesse Jackson's church, which was his headquarters, because he had to smoke every two minutes. I mean, he couldn't stop at that time. So we stepped outside and he, I mean, he talked about the 60s, of course. And I talked to Jackson afterwards, after Obama had gone leafleting with Michelle and the kid. I mean, they literally were going out sticking envelopes through the street. And, um, Jackson said to me, he said, listen, my generation, Martin Luther King's generation, Ralph Abernethy and all these people, and Jackson himself, he said, none of us will be the first. I tell you, this is the guy. Because we've got to escape from this, you know, hangover of this stuff. We've got to go into a new era. And I was extremely sceptical. Now, four years and three days from that conversation, Obama was elected. Now, it was always rubbish to say, this is the end of racial politics. Of course it wasn't going to be the end. It was only the beginning. Uh, but yeah. it was a heck of a break.
1: But the interesting thing, it came, it came after 40 years of pretty much uninterrupted conservative hegemony, we're starting with Nixon getting elected in 68, and there were only two men from the left occupied the White House in all those 40 years, Carter and... Clinton. Both had the mud of the old Confederacy on their boots to some extent. They were both southern, southern white men and that was important. And then you got a black senator, not even a state governor. So it looked like a revolutionary moment, but again, during the Obama years, the right
0: reinvents itself. Well, indeed. And of course, Obama would say, and indeed, and anybody who hasn't seen his speech, his virtual speech to the Democratic Convention this week, wherever you stand politically, should watch it. It is the most... It, it's one of the most powerful political speeches. Yeah, okay. I'm I've not going to let you that. No, 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 Trump. that's fine. I want to get on to No, uh, no, no, but, but uh, what I'm saying is that um, you're, you're absolutely right. There was much more going on on the right than on what Americans have not tended to call the left, but, I mean, the liberal side of politics over the time and the reinvention. And you're, it, it's a very acute point to make that the two people who bucked the trend over 40 years were both Southern governors, Clinton and Carter. So, Trump, you,
1: you, another great character from your book is, is the Mooch, Scaramucci. <laughs> he told you Trump wanted out
0: well, At the Well, the there's this character, and many of you will not know him, and maybe that's good for your soul. Um, Anthony Scaramucci, and I first met him, I suppose, in 15, And he was a money man in New York. He used to work for Goldman Sachs, and then he set up his own big hedge fund and all the rest of it. And I went to see him, and he was backing a completely ridiculous candidate, Scott Walker, who was the governor of um, Wisconsin. And he said, oh, Trump is a non-starter. He's in this for publicity, he doesn't care. The next time I saw Mooch about, I don't know, six months later, he turned into a Trumpist because clearly Trump, the bulldozer, was running. So he became a total Trumpist. Ended up for 11 days as White House communications director. But I saw him about four days before the election in 2016. And I was going to see Hillary Clinton's people and was going to see Trump people. So I went to see the mooch and I said, well, what's happening? And he said, oh, I think, you know, 55% chance we, Trump, will win. Didn't believe it, but there we are. So we had this conversation. As we walked towards the elevator, he put his hand on my shoulder and we were getting on quite well by this stage. And he said, but I've had one piece of good news. And he said, we've had an assurance from Donald. If he's elected on Tuesday, no more tweets. (laughs) Well, there we go. Now the Mooch is now, you know, an avid get rid of Trump. He thinks he's, he said to me the other day, I did an interview for a documentary I did about Joe Biden, and he said, I I said, what about Trump and the Constitution? He said, he's never read the Constitution. He doesn't know the Constitution. He doesn't like the Constitution. And then he said, very interesting, he said, he is the most, he, he said, he is the least American president in the modern era
1: fascinating insight. So how resilient is the Constitution because to some extent that's the the, test. the, 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 The framers in the 18th century framed the Constitution not to facilitate what's routinely called the will of the people but to some extent to thwart it to keep the will of the people in check because they feared mob rule. Is the Constitution
0: resilient enough now To protect American democracy? That's the question that's on the table. Uh, Jim Fallows of of The Atlantic, who's a wonderful commentator, worked in the Carter White House, but he's mainly been a journalist through all these years and is, you know, in his 60s. I did an interview with Jim after Trump's election, before his inauguration, where he said to me, look, this is, and we go back to our favourite subject, this is the biggest test of American democracy since the Civil War. And I think, and if you watch Obama's speech at the Democratic Convention, what he was saying, he said an extraordinary thing. He said, don't let them take away your democracy. And somebody, I think it was Ron Brownstein on The Atlantic, said afterwards, maybe Beschloss, the historian, said, no former president has ever said that about his successor to a convention or an any of them before. They haven't felt it necessary. But I think there is a serious question about the courts um, and how he handles it. And I, you know, I do think that's on the table.
1: Now, you won't like answering this question. Does the, the Scotland's leading historian, Sir Tom Devine, always asks when he's asked to project into the future, he always he says replies, the future is not my subject. The future is not my period.
0: <laughs> right, that's okay
1: man. And uh, So is he gonna win, Trump?
0: I think he won't, but... We said that four years ago. Partly scarred by 2016, although I, I had an inkling of it, but, I mean, it won't go into that. But anyway, um, I think he won't, but he could. There's a stubborn 40% of the voting public that still says that they will vote. You know, and that's largely, you know, we will vote Republican whatever. Um, But I guess, you see, Biden is a fascinating thing about Joe Biden. He is a man of Scranton, Pennsylvania, senator from Delaware for 32 years. Now, you can portray him as the Washington swamp epitomized if you're Trump. and You say Biden represents everything that's wrong with governance. On the other hand, Biden is the guy who knows what goes on in what we call rather disparagingly, or people call the Rust Belt, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, exactly the places where Hillary Clinton lost the election. They know Joe Biden. He's one of them. He, that, you know, so that blue-collar vote that deserted Hillary Clinton Exactly. not identify and, with and, him. Biden is, at one level, a Washington man. Of course he is. Vice President for eight years, Senator for 32. He's also the common man. I mean, I talked to a conductor on the Amtrak trains who knew him very well because when, you know, Biden had a tragedy in 72 when he was elected before he took his oath, his wife and young daughter were killed in a car crash. And he had two young sons who were badly injured. And he used to, as a senator, go back on the train every night to Wilmington, Delaware. It's about an hour and a half. And all the conductors and people knew him. And over the decades, they knew him. And he never travelled first class. he was in coach class, and this conductor, who actually turned out, he now says he's quite right wing and wouldn't vote for him, but adores Joe Biden and says, "Look, this is the guy. This represents America. This is a kind of. He's a sort of. I don't know. He's a kind of um, political version of you know Mr. America. I mean, he he speaks in that way, and he. I think he attracts a lot of people who are." wavering and, and what I would say about the Trump vote is that in the 2016 midterm elections what you felt when I was traveling around is that in particularly in the suburbs and particularly among women voters although they they wouldn't say it in direct terms they were really turning off him and I think that is where the election will be decided.
1: I'm going to get to the uh, audience questions. You've been sending in questions uh, for over an hour now. Thank you very much indeed. But one quick
0: anecdote. Yeah, sure. You met Trump in what's called the spin oh, room. Well, yes. I mean, I, one of the debates, I think the second debate um, with Clinton, it's the one where she said, you don't pay your taxes. And he said, that makes me smart. Yeah. I mean, okay, just let that stick to the wall. Um, he came out and, the candidates don't usually come out, they usually send out kind of you know, surrogates. And he was there and it, you know, it was a sort of a quick word. And, and he said, well, the, I've just checked the polls, the, the instant polls on these debates. And he said, it's quite clear that it's overwhelming. You know, I want it. And he, he went on and so I just went back to the desk and checked, I mean, complete rubbish. Now." You know, political people massage the facts, of course they do. It was an absolute straight lie, and he must have known it was a straight lie, because anybody could just go on their laptop and find out instantly. But he just, it just came out.
1: Do you think he knows it's lying,
0: or, or it no, does it represent he, a version I, of no, reality I to him? I don't think he does. Is it lying in the conventional sense? <laughs> What's the conventional sense? I mean, I think that he... I think the it's a hard word to use, but I think the narcissism is so profound and so overwhelming that I don't think that kind of calculation comes into it. OK, let's get to audience
1: questions. Um, Norman F. asks, would Nixon resign nowadays? Would Clinton be impeached? Have things moved morally? Or is Trump and his cohort
0: just a blip? Gosh, there's a lot of, a lot of questioning in there. Um, Clinton was impeached but not convicted, of course. Nixon was impeached and, and resigned because he knew he would be convicted. Because in the Republicans Senate. were going to turn against him in the Senate. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was key. He probably had four, four votes. I mean Goldwater went to him and said, you know, you've got four votes. And um, and he rang up Chief of Staff and he knew Nixon was listening in and he said, Dick Nixon has lied to me for the last time. So Nixon knew the game was up. Clinton, it was a deeply, deeply partisan, whatever you think about the Lewinsky affair, it was a deeply partisan thing. Trump has said that his impeachment by the House, Democrat control, of course, uh, which was rejected by the Senate in the trial, was a deeply, deeply partisan thing. Well, yes, it was because they didn't like him. They thought he was dreadful and they wanted to go for him, but they thought there were very, very sound constitutional grounds for impeachment with the Ukraine business. Now, would it happen today? If Nixon were around today, I think he would probably fight it out. I think that has been a huge change. But the key change. is he
1: would have lost, because enough Republicans were willing to turn their back on him and vote him down. Yeah, and so he inter- would have been kicked out of office. What
0: this question, I think, would but, but but, 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 now... Well, I think implicit in this question is, would that have happened with the Republican majority in the Senate now? Yeah. Would they have felt on a matter of principle that they should turn against him? And I suspect they wouldn't. Because
1: it, what that impeachment process revealed was how fully Trump owns the Republican Party, all the, uh, the congressmen and senators.
0: Yes, and I think how deep the cultural divide now is between the parties. And that, that has been the big change. And that's why, uh, Mr F, I think... Um, Nixon now would find himself in a stronger position.
1: Uh, Leslie A. asks Do you think Hillary Clinton would have made a successful president?
0: <sighs> Did no, you like her when you met her? I've no idea. I mean, I. Yeah, she is a. She's somebody that you feel is at a distance the whole time. But she's an extraordinarily accomplished person. She's very, very clever. The people who like her and care about her and followed her politically adore her. But she has the capacity to antagonise people in a way that I've seen in very few political figures. Now, a lot of that is... Misogyny? Well, there's a bit of that, yes. I thought she ran actually a very bad campaign. I mean, it was just a bad campaign. You ask, I mean, I just won't go on about this. Would she have been a good president? Look, she she was extremely skilled in world affairs. I mean, you know, Obama's Secretary of State for four years. Um, she knows everybody. She's clever. Um, I, you know, all the Trump stuff about Clinton corruption, I think, is hugely, hugely inflated. And I suspect that she would have been one of the best qualified people to be president that we've known in our lifetimes. Of course, that doesn't mean that when the crisis hits, you deal with it well.
1: Uh, Richard M, some breaking news in this question. Oh. Will the fact that Steve Bannon, Trump's first Chief of Staff,
0: uh, it, was w- it? No, he, was, he, he wasn't He was called Chief of Staff. He was called a Senior Advisor okay. or something. Anyway.
1: Will the fact that Steve Bannon has been charged today with fraud yes. in, a, in a Build the Wall campaign scam have any impact
0: on the presidential election? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, as I understand it, and I've only heard fragmentary information about this, Bannon's been arrested uh, on the basis that the Build the Wall campaign, which is obviously connected with the Mexican wall, was raising money... Um, in some way, under false pretenses from people, <clears throat> um, which is obviously quite a serious charge. Are we, are we um, sure that he's been charged? Let's be absolutely, absolutely clear. He's been arrested. I, he's been arrested, and my understanding is he's been charged, but I'm, I certainly okay. won't, you know, won't go down that road because I don't know in detail. Um, now, will it affect it? I,
1: I'd be skeptical. Enough of Trump's.
0: Uh, Oh.
1: Close advisors have gone to... You know,
0: have, oh, have yeah. I mean, appeared in court. one or two of them are already in jail and, and some others... Um, it hasn't derailed him yet. Outside. No, I think people who've hitched their star to the Trump wagon have done it. Now, I think there are people in the middle, 5 10%, who are the people who will decide this election, whether they abandon him, having voted for him in 16... In the right states, because don't forget, Clinton lost um, by approximately 80,000 votes spread between three states—Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania—which tipped over in the Electoral College, and she won it by three million. Biden has just got to watch that he doesn't win it by four million and loses key states. I don't think Bannon's going to make the difference. I think Trump will make the difference. I mean, it, to me, this election hinges on Trump's personal behaviour over the next two months. Can he cope with the pressure of being told by some of his closest, including his family, that he's likely to lose? There's a question from Alan C. If Trump loses,
1: he almost certainly won't accept the result. He'll Absolutely. challenge the legitimacy. He will. will there be, he says, will there be blood on the streets? Will there be serious civil unrest? But Trump does have that power, doesn't he? The power to persuade half of America that the incoming president is not legitimate. Uh, uh, He's made it
0: absolutely clear that if he loses, and of course the difficulty with making this argument is it's based on the assumption you might lose, which is tricky, but anyway. Mm. He is saying that if he loses, he will almost certainly say the post office screwed it up, postal service. Now, blood in the streets, I think there will be enormous trouble. I did a conversation uh, three or four months ago which included... um, a journalist called Susan Glasser from The New Yorker, who's a very, very serious and senior person and writes the Washington newsletter for The New Yorker. And I asked her this question about what happens if Trump says it doesn't count. And of course, the electoral college, the electors from each state have to certify the results. Now, assuming they do that, which usually happens in mid-December, it's usually a total formality. Trump will still argue. And she said, look, there is a strong body of opinion that on the 20th of January, which is Inauguration Day, uh, and it's laid down in the Constitution, that um, the Secret Service will have to say, Mr. Trump, we're escorting you out of the building. I mean, I I think we're gonna have fun and games. I mean, um, you know, I remember the Bush-Gore election in 2000, which wasn't concluded for pretty well a month and I think this one, partly because of the number of people who will vote by post, which will be huge, it could be 40%, um, will take a long time to sort out. And if, if the initial suggestions are that Trump has lost, he'll fight it all the way. Of course he will, And he does. And,
1: and a substantial chunk of the electorate will, will spend the next four years believing that their man was removed in a coup d'etat.
0: Well, the real question is, how substantial would that chunk be? And that's the big question. But I think it's a really important one for America. Let's take another question from uh,
1: Derek B. Do you think Donald Trump, with his supporters, has broken trust
0: in American democracy for a generation? For a generation, it's a difficult thing to um, judge. I mean, look, the thing that attracted me first to America not just because, as we talked about earlier, the excitements of the 60s, and I was reading American literature at university and I was, you know, I was obsessed with it, not obsessed, but intrigued by the story of this amazing place. And one of the things that struck me when I got there and when I lived there for a year as a student was its ability to, as we used to say in the football field, turn on a six, sixpence. We're old enough to talk mm. about sixpences. <laughs> just, you know, suddenly, Switch direction. And I would be extremely reluctant to say that the imprint of Trump, were he to be defeated, would last for a generation. I mean, of course, there would be a period of, you know, reconnection with something else. Biden, you know, is a deeply traditional figure who would say, you know, I want to. Get back to this, that, and the other, clean out all these officials. And of course, that would cause trouble and everything else. If that happened, I'm not sure in 15 years people would regard the Trump era as anything other than a, you know, a blip on the screen, because that's what America does. There's another question Um,
1: from Norman F., who we heard from earlier. Yeah. With the right wing leaders in the USA and the UK, he says here, using disruptive tactics through the use of lying. Do the opposition in the form of Democrats adopt the same brass neck tactics or do they continue with outmoded things like
0: facts, in inverted commas, well, and it, talking it, about hope and... I, I, you understand where Norman is coming from with that question, but um, I, I think that um, Democrats believe in the tone of this convention, and you listen to the Obama speech and, of course, um, the Biden speech, that they believe that most Americans, uh, even some who voted for Trump last time and have been reluctant to abandon a president, particularly in a difficult period of a pandemic, are feeling that somehow it's not working. And that's their appeal. And of course, Trump will reach for all kinds of things. And I mean, he's, you know, He gives credence to the most extraordinary conspiracy theories. But the only thing you can do if you're opposing that is to say no, and hope and believe that most people share your view. Now, whether that's true or not, I can't say, but I think that is exactly what they should do and what they are doing. But again, one of the things
1: you do in your book is trace the roots of what you might call Trumpism, and they're much older than you might think. Oh, yeah. You ask somebody at some, some point, uh, why, is there, why is there a war on science? And the re-
0: reply comes, it started decades ago, the war on science. Well, I mean, the war on science, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the climate change thing, You know, one of the reasons that big movements against climate change took root in the United States. Wasn't because they didn't believe the science, but if you come from a political position which holds that international agreements and cooperation across borders is inherently wrong, that it is, as Trump would put it, America first, and you're told that this climate crisis is such that it can only be solved by international cooperation, you then say, "Well, hang on, that can't be right. Therefore, the science must be wrong." I mean, it's a very curious and, form and, of argument and maliciously wrong—a hoax, maliciously. And you know, Trump is—you know—he's anti-vaccine by instinct. I mean, he—he he just goes. I mean, there's a guy called Alex Jones who is, um, well, I. You don't quite know how to put this politely, but he's in the David, David Icke uh, category. Uh, he's rather cleverer than David Icke, but he, he runs a, a huge TV thing and he um, pushes every conspiracy theory you've ever thought of. And Trump at one point said, you know, this man should have a Pulitzer Prize, which is the great prize for journalism in the States. I mean, he is, you know, on the nutty fringe and... Trump's in there and he doesn't he doesn't much care and I think you know if you read for example the memoir of John Bolton who's a hard-boiled neocon he doesn't like that phrase but you know the great one of the great progenitors of the Iraq war Bolton was served briefly and uncomfortably as Trump's national security adviser scathing about Trump and he says I mean the Bolton book is, is slightly unpleasant you realize that you know he's a very very unpleasant man but uh, he talks about Trump in excoriating terms, saying this man has got no understanding of international affairs, all he's interested in is a quick win and, you know, instant gratification. Now, I am not in a position to comment as to whether that is true, but all I will say is John Bolton says it, um, yeah. and John Bolton is to the right of Genghis Khan. I want
1: to ask you to finish, Jim, because we've only got a couple of minutes left, with a sort of personal observation and a reflection. Like you, I grew up in the decades after the Second World War and as I got interested in the United States as a force in the world, sure. uh, I came to understand that the Europe that I'd grown up in, a Europe of peace, increasing prosperity, increasing opportunity for most people, not for everybody by any means, but for most people, I came to understand that that was substantially an American achievement. America's, American power in the world used benignly uh, in pursuit of Something that benefited all of us who grew up in those, or most of us who grew up in those decades. That was the Rooseveltian settlement coming from Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman after the Second World War. Are we living through the end of that Rooseveltian-Truman
0: period? We are if Trump wins a second term. Uh, I think I did a piece from Berlin uh, 80 months ago, a documentary, about what the Germans thought about this. And their alarm about his relationship with Putin, is lack of understanding about everything you've mentioned. And I do think that is what is at stake in this election. Now, people will have different views, but if you believe what you've just described, I think you've got to realize
1: that that's on the line. Jim, thank you very much. I've got to end it there. Thank you very much for staying with us. Um, This book, James Naughty, On the Road, American Adventures from Nixon to Trump, Available in our online bookshop. You can buy it now. And please also think perhaps about uh, donating to the Book Festival if you've enjoyed this and other sessions. But for now, thanks to you for joining us at home. And thanks, Jim.
0: Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.